0: Hello and welcome to the podcast version of the Love and Science radio show from BCFM. This episode first went out on the 30th of January 2017.
1: Love and Science
0: Unfortunately, we don't have Malcolm with us today. Malcolm's in Brussels. Uh, but you know me, I can't do the show on my own. So I'm delighted to say that I'm joined by a friend of the show, uh, regular guest, Maddie Nichols. Hello, Maddie.
2: Hello, thanks for having me back.
0: Hey, no, it's good to have you. How are you?
2: I'm good, thanks. Yeah. I mean, there's lots of changes going on in the world, but getting on with it, yeah. just about.
0: So, uh, people who don't know, Maddy is a scientist uh, at the University of Bristol, and uh, I, I'd say scientist in this really loose way, because you, you use all sorts of science in your work, don't you?
2: Yes, yes, so I guess, well, some people say I just can't make my mind up, really, <laughs>
0: um,
2: but yeah, so my well, I'm a PhD student, so I... I haven't left the world of students because <laughs> um, I don't really want to enter the real world, even no. less so nowadays. Yes. Um, yeah. So I'm working between um, several different science departments, uh, mainly chemistry and engineering, um, doing some doing a project looking at sort of tissue engineering stuff, which is all very exciting. Cool. Yeah, yeah. But we won't get into that today. No, no. <laughs> no.
0: We're going we're to be looking at the at uh, the science news and dominating the science news as well
2: mm-hmm. as the
0: political news and just about every news is, of course, Donald Trump. We just heard him in the news bulletin. Um, I, as a scientist in the, in the scientific community, we're hearing a lot about do- Donald Trump. Um, obviously, a lot of people support what he's doing, and equally, a lot of people aren't that happy about it. it, it do you get a sense in the scientific community about how, how it's going down? Is, is, is it turmoil? Is it happiness? What's going on?
2: Yeah, I mean, it is very concerning, um, particularly for scientists in the UK, because there's quite a lot of turbulence with Brexit and how that's going to affect how science operates in the EU and we've also got uh, the new administration coming in and making loads of changes and having friends that also do a lot of science in the States. I mean it's a common problem in science that we don't really want to falsify data and we can't ignore stuff that isn't true when we make claims but just kind of deleting stuff or completely ignoring what is going on is just bad scientific practice, and yeah. if that's being encouraged by you know, someone that spreads this out beyond our community into like, the wider world, hmm. that's just really not on.
0: No, I mean, you're, what you're talking about there is the stories that are coming out that um, the, uh, the government scientists, so people who are funded by the, the federal money in, in America, are being stopped from tweeting, stopped from talking about the science that they're doing to the public for we don't know how long this is a a a a directive by the trump initiative they've come in and they've said so the environmental people nasa's climate people and um well anybody talking about climate science specifically is not allowed to give their evidence to the public not allowed to tweet about it and in fact the badlands national park which is not a bruce springsteen song it's a (laughs) it's a national park in the in in, uh, in america and they tweeted three tweets shortly after Trump's inauguration, which was subsequently deleted as part of this move to stop the uh, the, the scientists from getting their message out. Now, those three tweets that which were deleted uh, weren't completely deleted. They were screen-grabbed, and I'd, I'd just like to read them now. Uh, so Badlands National Park tweeted, ''The pre-industrial concentration of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere was 280 parts per million. As of December 2016, so after the Industrial Revolution, after mankind's impact, it's 404.93 parts per million. So that's 280 before mankind to 404 parts per million after mankind. The next tweet that was deleted as a result of Trump coming in is, today the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere is higher than at any time in the last 650,000 years. And the final tweet is the flip side of the atmosphere, ocean acidity has increased 30% since the industrial revolution. So that's the kind of thing that they're not being allowed to tweet, it's being deleted, that's the science of this. It's one of the things that Trump talked about in his in his campaign, was that he wanted to take politics out of science. What he seems to be doing is using politics to silence science, at least at the moment.
2: Yeah, and that's a very worrying situation to be in, really. Because I mean, yeah, there's a difference between not being able, well, not being in a position to talk about the work that you're doing because it's sensitive and you know of a sensitive nature, and you don't want it to get out too soon. But being told to just not talk about it at all it's not only I guess kind of fundamentally going against what you as a scientist believe that you want you know to get the truth out there um and just not being able to do it at all and actually some news sites are calling it the control or delete approach where you know much like you would do on your computer when you open up the task manager and see what's going on and you then change what your system is doing it's kind of like trump hoping to control these different kind of um, agencies and scientific institutions and therefore the scientists by putting these kind of stringent regulations on what they're allowed to say and I guess even do maybe at some point which not a great outlook um, and then altering um, the policies to say what he wants them to say and then um, I guess deleting stuff that goes against that.
0: Quite. I mean, it's not new. Um, In 2009, Obama enacted rules that federal agencies should have scientific integrity policies that guaranteed the rights of free speech of the employees, in other words, the scientists, following on from the gagging of some researchers and the altering of reports under the Bush administration. Now, that altering of reports is actually climate science that the Bush administration uh, well, is alleged to have altered what the science said to fit with their climate-denying uh, policy. So it, it's the return of the of the Republican Party and it's the return of this sort of gag on scientists.
2: Yeah, and at the moment it seems to be focusing primarily on climate change stuff, which is obviously a very big deal, uh, the way that our world works and the way that we are using energy. And with America being, I guess, one of the biggest users of that energy, obviously the um, initiatives and protocols to try and reduce the use and production of gases Does is putting well having an effect on kind of industry that America has, and I guess Trump's trying to stop that from happening.
0: Yeah, it's 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 a very difficult thing. I mean, we have to be clear that it's possible that this is just a temporary thing. They're sorting out what they want to do, and they might come back and say, "Okay, carry on as as you were." But certainly, the 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 history of the Republican Party is is not suggesting that that would be the case. Mm -hmm. What Trump said about climate science in the in his campaign does not suggest that the case. The people who he has appointed to head up the Environmental Protection Agency doesn't suggest that this is going to be the case. But we do have to say that (laughs) it's possible that he'll just come round and say, yeah, no, I see. I see the science. I see the evidence. But another area where he's not particularly good at looking at the evidence and drawing the right conclusions is with <laughs> his um, refugee policy. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, there's a statistic which I just wanted to look at um, which has come out. This is n- not specifically science but it is about the world today. Yes. So um, the number uh, over the last ten years, averaged out over the last ten years, the number of people killed in America by Islamic immigrants is two. The number of people being shot by another American is 11,737.
1: Goodness. And
0: somehow Donald Trump has decided to close the door on seven countries with the predominantly Muslim um population to stop them coming in rather than looking at the gun problem in america there is a march in uh, bristol today do you know about that buddy
2: uh yes I, i'm going to be attending okay. <laughs> it's a very important thing to do um it's at 6 pm at college green there's going to be a march um against this muslim Okay. Well,
0: if you'd like to uh, go along to that, then you'll see Maddy there and uh, (laughs) me, if I can get my daughter into bed in time. But uh, otherwise, uh, we'll hopefully see you there if you want to um, stand against uh, what Donald Trump is saying about refugees in America.
1: You're listening to Love and Science on BCFM Radio.
0: And we're on 93.2 FM. I'm delighted to be joined in the studio by Maddy Nichols. We're looking at the science news and the science well we're chatting about the science news <laughs> and the stories behind the headlines. Uh, one of the stories which caught my eye in the last week was uh, it was in the Atlantic on the atlantic.com from Olga Kazan. And it was about some research that was done by Brian Schaffner who's a political scientist from the University of Massachusetts. And what they did was they surveyed 1388 Americans. They Uh, showed them two pictures you've probably all have seen the pictures of the inauguration so you've got the Barack Obama inauguration with a field full of people I mean just huge numbers of people you can clearly see there are lots of people in the photograph the other photograph is of the Trump inauguration there aren't very many people by comparison in that picture. It's plain as day if you look at the two pictures, one's got more people in them. There is no question about that. But they surveyed 1,388 Americans. 41% of the people this is just to start off with 41% of the people who voted for Donald Trump said that the one with more people in it was the Donald Trump uh, crowd and Uh, and they were wrong but that's just you can kind of understand that they want that to be the Donald Trump picture there's more people in it they want support for their person that's kind of understandable where it doesn't make sense to me is that when they're faced with those two pictures and they know that the one with fewer people in is the Donald Trump inauguration and the one with more people in is the Obama uh, one they're one in seven of Trump supporters will say that there are more people in the picture, which clearly has fewer people in it. I mean, it's less than half the number of people. I would say looking oh, yeah, at yeah, if pages. not more than yeah,
2: that like there is a very clear, distinct dis- disparity in the number yeah. of people between those pictures. I mean, the uh, well, the one with more people in, <laughs> the one from Obama's inauguration, you can't even see like the well, the floor. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> like. Yeah. You know, and then the one for Trump has got these kind of like white, I don't know if they're tents or just they're covering the ground or stuff, but you can see everything. The other one is just thick with people. You can't see the paths or anything.
0: I mean, you cannot Mm. look at that picture and say that there's more people in the the Trump inauguration photo. You can argue about whether that was taken at a different time. You can do all that, Mm. but you cannot look at it and honestly say that there are more people in it. And yet one in seven, so 15%, of the people who voted for Donald Trump said that there were more in that one, uh, which is in, in comparison to 3% of people who said that they didn't vote. Mm. Uh, you know, maybe they were lying then as well, who knows? But, <laughs> you know, we don't know. But this the, the psychology of that, my understanding of the psychology of that is that, that is called, that's something called expressive responding. So people are Willing to openly lie with the evidence staring them in the face if they feel like it will support the political candidate that they support now in that environment, you know if, if you had a dinner party with six of your Republican friends, one of them would be delighted to lie direct to your face in that environment i say republican I should say trump supporters that was the the criteria here. Um, <laughs> In that environment, how on earth do we combat this this false news thing are well, they calling it fake news an alternative fact mm. just to say there's no such thing as an alternative fact <laughs> that's not a thing yeah
2: because there's a fact yeah which is a fact by yeah. definition Quite. that it's something that holds true so I mean
0: it, uh, what, the
2: opposite what, of that word. I mean, use whatever word that comes to mind for yourself.
0: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Rubbish. I mean, we saw. It, yeah, exactly. We <laughs> saw it in the um, it, 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 in the campaign as well, didn't we? We saw videos of of Donald Trump saying something, and then a video of him saying, "I didn't say that," mm. and you know, just to, to openly not tell the truth. And I it, I feel like you know it's politicians. Are not my favourite people in terms of uh, uh, trusting them to tell the truth, but this seems like it's going a step further than we've seen. Yeah, and And I mean,
2: yeah, it's fairly common practice for politicians and other people to avoid the actual question that they're asked. But when Trump was asked about the attendance at his inauguration, he made it about the weather and how it hadn't rained when he gave his speech. And it's like, well, you're not really addressing how many people. And I mean, he did kind of say that. The media had lied, Mm. but it mainly focused on the whole, yes, and then it stopped raining. Mm. It's his classic, lots of pausing and using his expressive face.
0: And His his press secretary stood up and briefed the White House media and said, uh, you know, the media in the White House and said there were more people than at the Obama uh, inauguration. You know, Mm. just lying, openly lying to them. Yeah. So what do we do? How do we, how can we... Find our way through it? How can we pick our way through it? How do we get to the science behind <laughs> what's being told to us by uh, the politicians in this case? Yeah.
2: Well, I mean, we're quite fortunate in that people are picking up on this and saying, like, hey, you're lying. Or, you know, even when they're kind of calling these people out when they're stating these alternative facts um, <laughs> out loud, and they kind of say, well, you know, like, we in the whole world <laughs> can see these photos ourselves mm. and, you know, come to our own conclusions. And I think it's important to, as with any kind of news article, um, it might not necessarily hold true. So you kind of got to take everything with a little bit of a pinch of salt. And I mean, I know this is a study, particularly with studies and you know, stuff on people's behaviour, it's a lot harder to kind of categorise and verify. And when statistics are involved, we all know that you know seventy percent of statistics are made up.
0: You know, <laughs> <Isn't it 70? laughs>
2: classically, yeah. Um, yeah, statistics can be kind of they're a bit of a dodgy area
1: mm-hmm.
2: um, to go into. But yeah, I guess you've got to kind of get information from lots of different sources. Um, we live in a world where it is possible to get access to the information of these like claims that are being made.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, some cases yeah. more than others yeah. but yeah you just got to kind of got to search around and read everything with kind of an air of skepticism yeah
0: <laughs> yeah absolutely my, my favorite thing that's come out of this is the new twitter handle rogue NASA. Mm-hmm. You know, Fantastic. That's like the combination of Star Wars and NASA, <laughs> isn't it? It's absolutely perfect. Um, but anyway, it, there's, it, all these um, national uh, science federations in America, um, as I'm sure you're all aware, have been setting up alternative Twitter accounts uh, where they, they can't be silenced and they can put the science out there. So if you're on Twitter, follow those people as well. Now. Recently, just to move away from that, something a little bit more <laughs> uplifting. Um, recently, I was very fortunate to meet up with Rachel Ignatowski. Now, Rachel is a, an illustrator and an author. And she's written a book, and um, drawn a book, I suppose, illustrated a book called Women in Science, 50 Fearless Pioneers Who Changed the World. Now, flicking through the book, there are some really wonderful illustrations giving you the story of 50 as it says people who changed the world and I, I I picked up the book and I was kind of blown away by it and I started looking into it, discovered it was a New York Times bestseller and, uh, which is good news isn't it and managed to catch up with Rachel and uh, have a chat with her and well I started by asking her if this was something that she'd always wanted to do
1: yeah, I've always been interested in science. One of my favorite classes in high school was this human anatomy class I took and um, just like learning about how my own body worked, like that when I eat a sandwich, like, oh, the bread digests in my mouth and then the meat digests in my small intestine. It, it, stuff like that just kind of blew my mind. And all of a sudden I had like a better understanding of myself and the world around me. And that just spreads like wildfire where you're like, oh, I want to learn how everything works. I personally think that scientific literacy is one one of the most important things that we can teach young and old people in this world. Um, a lot of people feel scared to, to learn about complicated and dense materials. They, they, they feel like I'm not smart enough to learn about, you know, dark matter or astrophysics, I'll never understand it. But what I'm trying to do with this book for kids and adults, if I can make it fun and easy and present this information in kind of like a whimsical way, I'm hoping that they're brave enough to pick up a book that is a little more denser than, you know, just a a super illustrated book about women in science. And I also think women in science is super important just because they're just so underrepresented. So people get to learn about, Volcanoes and genetics and history with this book—they they get to learn about like what these women had to overcome while learning about science. It, it's just—I'm—I'm I'm really excited about this project, and it's just such a passion of mine.
0: Yeah. I can see that. Yeah. And it, but it comes across in the book, you know, it's 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 beautifully made, it's beautifully put together, it's beautifully written. And and it could it could only be that because you care about.
1: It. I yep, it is um it is what I literally every waking moment went into this book. The responses I'm getting, it's like more than I could ever hope for. Like I'm getting like Calls from, uh, well, not calls. I'm getting emails. No one calls each other anymore. <laughs> I'm getting, I'm getting e- emails from like moms who are like every night I read one page with my kid and, um, the conversations that get started are amazing because like they start having questions not only about like the science in the book, but also about like history and, um, like the women's movement and, and all of that's in the book too. So like, like I said before, like you get to learn about, uh, you know, genetics, but then at the same time, you get to learn about the civil rights movement because what these women had to overcome is just as impressive as what they accomplished. So um, just being able to start those conversations between like parents and kids and then the parents are like, and I learned a lot too. I had no idea about any of this stuff. So like, that's like my, my plan is working. They're, <laughs> they're learning. They're learning. There's
0: 50 uh people in this book there's more than 50 women in science over the years so how do you
1: (laughs) how do you pick them um okay so i could have done uh this book could have literally been like women in chemistry 50 women in chemistry and we'd be having the same conversation where it's like you left out a lot of women how did you do this how did you cut it down so um for me um i really wanted diversity and not just diversity in um, the people's stories. I wanted diversity in uh, the fields of study that they're in. So that's why we have people, we have volcanologists, we have marine biologists, we have uh, you know, astronomers, we have uh, biochemists, we got them all. We got them all. <laughs> um, but I also really wanted a breadth of history. So that's why we go all the way from Hypatia in ancient Alexandria to miriam Mizurkani, for people who don't know in 2014 she was the first woman to to win a fields medal because of her work in like uh hyperbolic geometry uh, it's like it's insane the the like for me that was one of the hardest things to just like write about because I had to learn about this intense intense math um and like distill it down to where an eight-year-old could also understand it so um that was a really amazing challenge um Breath of history, and then also breath of story. I wanted people who came from different places, uh, different religions, different backgrounds, different economic situations, and that's why you learn so much about suffrage, the civil rights movement, um, and you even end up learning about like the space race and World War II. Um, and what happens is you find out that what these women actually have in common, because they're so different, is just like this, this fierce passion to do their work and their love of their work, no matter what what the obstacles were so yeah
0: what yeah. was kind of the easiest what's the just like this person's
1: going in okay so this person's going in rachel carson and for those who don't know uh rachel carson was a science writer um who uh just had a passions about writing about marine biology and then she uncovered that DDT was poisoning the water supply destroying the ecosystem and so with her background in marine biology and ecology she exposed uh, what you know these pesticide companies were doing over like uh, about a quarter of a million dollars they spent trying to defame her while she had cancer actually she was battling cancer so she was showing up to court fighting for what she thought was right while. You know, battling cancer and, um, help create, uh, the standards and laws that, you know, protect the environment and the people today in, in America. By fighting for it in court, so yeah, she was one of the people where I'm like, she used her passion and uh, her passion for science and her ability to communicate with the public about science to really change policy in America and, and the world because the world followed in suit. And to you know, uh, and for those who don't know, you get exposed to too much too much DDT, uh, your brain just falls apart. That's and your liver just falls apart. That's the that's the fun way of saying it. Um, so you can read my book to hear the more scientific version of
0: it. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. It's, I mean, that sounds like a film on its own, right? But Catherine Johnson is, uh, is uh, The film uh, Hidden Figures is coming out in the UK very soon. It's already out in America. Yes. Have you seen it?
1: I just saw it. I just saw it. It's so good. All these girls in the audience, they just were like cheering the whole time. It's just like, yeah, take your family, take everyone you know. <laughs> um, Katherine Johnson is literally one of my favorite stories in the book. So, uh, she grew up in the height of segregation in America and she started working at NASA. So, not only did she have to deal with, uh, you know, segregation, not being able to use the bathrooms in the same building that she worked, but she also, um, had to deal with a very, uh, segregated by gender, a very gender biased, uh, NASA. So, at the time, uh, women were kind of only given the work of being computers at nasa and being a computer at nasa um, is you know right now i have a computer in my phone and a computer on my lap talking to you and i use computers every day but they didn't have computers back then and instead they actually had a room filled with women and each of them would do just a part of the equation to, to get the larger equation Solved that they would then give to, you know, the mathematicians and the engineers who um, got to really make the real decisions on the program So that wasn't enough for Katherine Johnson She wanted to know what they were working on at NASA She knew they were trying to beat the Russians into space and she needed more information She needed the day-to-day information to be able to do her job effectively So she goes to her superior and she says can I be in one of these meetings and he goes well, women aren't allowed in these meetings. And then she says, well, is it against the law for me to be in these meetings? And he's like, no. And she's like, I'm going in. (laughs) So she she goes in, she starts asking questions. Um, She uh, calculates the uh, launch window for the Man-Mercury project. That's a huge success. And then she becomes a leader in trajectory uh, for the Apollo mission. So she actually planned the flight path to get our men to the moon. Uh, amazing. amazing. She wrote the first textbook on space travel. She, uh, did, uh, she was an integral part of the space shuttle program that we still use today. And, uh, she worked on the, um, manned mission to Mars that we're still like working towards today. She, she worked a lot on that. She's 98 now. I'm pretty sure. Um, last year when I was doing the book, actually, um, I'm about to send it to the printers. I'm like, struggle. I'm like, oh, I need to get this done so we could get it to the printers. Um, and my editor emails me and is like, you need to look at the news right now. And at the age of 97, Catherine uh, Johnson was awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom. So I got to draw it real fast and get it in the book. You also have to think of it like she started off not being even allowed in the meetings, not even being allowed to go to the bathroom in the same building that she worked. And then um, after a lifetime of achievement, she's awarded the highest civilian honor you can get in America by President Obama. And it just kind of, it sends like tingles down your spine. It's fantastic.
0: But are there other um, sort of stories in here, people, in the the book that you you think need to be made into a film?
1: Oh, yeah. Man, there's, oh, geez, there's so many. Uh, You know what would be a really good one? Lan Wu.
0: Okay, yeah.
1: How she discovered the Higgs boson, especially because it's like modern science. I think that would make an amazing movie because um, she came from such poverty in China. Her mom was completely illiterate, did whatever she could to get a a Shaolan Wu an education, and she wasn't going to be allowed to go to university unless she got a full ride completely. And basically all of the entirety of the United States said no to her, except for Vassar. And so she came over on a boat with nothing but like change and like a little piece of cake and um, ended up at Vassar and just kind of just worked so hard. Um, and then she, she's getting her um, PhD from Harvard. And she is like, she's the only woman in her graduating class and she's told to leave. Uh, the reception for the graduates, because there's no women allowed in the reception. And she says to herself, like, I'm going to make three great discoveries. That's my goal in life is to make three amazing discoveries. And and she does. She discovers the charm quark, uh, which is like a sub particle that's, a, it's even smaller than like neutrons and protons. It's like the quarks that like are charged to create those. And then she discovered gluon, which is what keeps all those quarks together. And then she goes on to be the lead on the team that discovers the Higgs boson, mm. which is called the God particle. Yeah. And that's, you know it's, it's what gives all these subatomic particles mass. It's this huge field that they're all going in. Yeah. She, she doesn't even have a birth certificate because she was born during uh, the Japanese occupation of Hong Kong. There was like bombs going off while she was being born through just tenacity and her hard work. She, she fulfilled her dreams and just really amazing. Shulan Wu.
0: And that's Rachel Ignatowski talking about her New York Times bestselling book, Women in Science. You're listening to Love and Science on BCFM. That's 93.2 FM. And if you just heard Thea Gilmore, there she was, just finishing, uh, then you are listening to Love and Science Live on BCFM or listening back on the BCFM website. Uh, which you can find at bcfm.com. But if you didn't just hear Thea Gilmore, you're listening to the Love and Science podcast, which you can find at loveandscience.podbean.com, where we put the show out without any of the music, which would be a shame.
2: It would be a real shame.
0: But, you know, some people just want the science. So let's get back to that. <laughs> so we're talking about the science behind the headlines. And uh, one story, another story that caught my eye this week was uh, in Scientific American. Which is, Signs of Alien Air Herald a New Era of Exoplanet Discoveries. I know, pretty cool, eh? Mm -hmm. Um, So exoplanets obviously are planets outside of our solar system. Any planets you didn't learn about in school? Those are the exoplanets, because <laughs> uh, we didn't. But it depends when you were at school. Maybe they're learning about exoplanets now, but Perhaps certainly they when are. I was there, I
2: mean, they should know what they are. Yeah, did you? Really? Uh,
0: So you you left school more recently than I did. Was exoplanet? <laughs> uh, were exoplanets dis- discussed in uh, school?
2: I don't think they were. I think we cook, kind of you know? did. You know, like Mercury, Venus, yeah. Earth, Mars, yeah, blah blah. blah. Okay. And then that sort of was an acceptance of the fact that you know. It's not just our sun. We're not the centre of the whole universe. Yeah. There are lots of other stars which in turn would have potentially <laughs> um, their own sequence of planets and mm. other orbiting things around them. Yeah, But I don't think we specifically had the term exoplanet.
0: Okay. Well... Here we are, we've got, I don't know how many it is now, it goes up by the yeah, second, well not by the second, by the month. Um, Kepler spacecraft is uh, is finding an awful lot of them. If, you, if you're if you interested in exoplanets and you want to look up at the night sky and just have a little bit of a dream, I uh, the, the area of the sky where the vast majority of the exoplanets have been found is in the uh, constellation Cygnus the Swan, just near to the constellation Lyra. Uh, which is my favorite constellation um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, because my daughter's called Lyra that's why well she's called Lyra and did you know it doesn't matter <laughs> The point is, uh, if you look at that point of the sky that's where the Kepler space telecraft that's uh, telecraft telescope has been looking and finding all these exoplanets but uh, this story in Scientific American uh, is talking about seeing the atmosphere so these these planets are around stars so far away um, I, I saw a video recently uh, of um, a composite of images from the Keck, space, uh, Keck telescope in Hawaii of, uh, I think it was the first video of, or one of the first certainly, of, of exoplanets orbiting wow. their star. I mean, it's absolutely incredible, but there's no way from these little dots on the screen that you can see... Uh, the atmosphere, you can tell where the atmosphere is. So, Maddy, I'm very pleased to be joined as you can hear by <laughs> Maddy Nichols, um, who is a proper scientist. And, I uh, about that.
2: <laughs> oh, oh! The internet is a wonderful thing.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, you know, the University of Bristol thinks you are, so that'll do for me. Um, I, it, what, how can you possibly, from Earth, see the atmosphere, or tell what the atmosphere is, of a planet around another star?
2: Okay. So, from what I've gathered (laughs) from the sources available on this. Um, Obviously, the stars that we see, which are what these exoplanets orbit around, you can appreciate it's hard enough for us to see them with our own eyes. So we do have to use telescopes, which um, vary in size around the world. We've got the square kilometre array and other huge big ones in the deserts and stuff like that because there's enough space for them to be able to collect a lot of light. And that's one of the limiting factors in... How much you can see of the night sky. Obviously, you don't want light pollution from cities, but you also need to collect a lot of light. And some of these telescopes are actually out in space, much like the Hubble Space Telescope. That's
0: it for Hubble. Woo. <laughs> Woohoo!
2: Um, yeah, so these ones out in space obviously you don't have to worry about the problems that are presented by the ones on the surface of the Earth. Um, and aboard these telescopes, not only do we just take photos or videos, in the case of the one that Andrew just mentioned earlier. Um, There are also other bits of equipment on there which can, I guess, probe or analyse stuff in space. Mm. So one of these things is a spectrometer, and this essentially means that they shine a load of well, they look at the well, spectrum or light spectrum of what they're looking at. So the fact that they can see it means that these objects must be giving out light or illuminated mm. by the star that they're yeah. orbiting. Um, and people have heard of, I'm sure, UV light and infrared light, and then there's the whole visible light spectrum. And molecules in the atmosphere of these planets um will undergo certain transitions when, they're, well, when they take on the energy from these different uh, light sources, say. So this kind of gives a molecule footprint, <laughs> a bit like yeah. your fingerprint on your like, how it's unique to you. Yeah. These different energy transitions are unique to the elements. So based on the different energy transitions that we can see through these instruments, we can build up a picture of what elements are present in that atmosphere, if mm. that happens to be an atmosphere.
0: Yeah. Okay, so it, it, it's essentially like when we shine light through a prism, like the front uh, the front cover of the Dark Side of the Moon album. Oh yeah,
2: yeah.
1: We
0: see the colours come out the other side. The mm-hmm. colours um, are separated into the spectrum from the, the the light that's coming from the star. Yeah, which rather is than the white prism, light. Yeah. It's some spectroscopy <laughs> instrument, and then th- those colours and where they're missing,
2: mm-hmm. it, that yeah.
0: tells us what the atmosphere is made up yeah,
2: of. Yeah, because that would be the energy that these different Molecules, which like carbon, oxygen, anything like that, have taken in <laughs> for okay. different energy transitions within that molecule Great. or atom.
0: Yeah. So the the reason why we want to see the atmosphere is because we're looking for life on other planets. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And what what it says in the in the subtitle of this uh, Scientific American article is, uh, new efforts hint that a nearby world, GJ. 1132b. It's
2: a catchy name, isn't, isn't it? it?
0: Brilliant. Mm. Uh, may have an Earth like atmosphere with water and methane. So uh, tell us a little bit about what that could mean.
2: Okay, so we've got water and methane. And obviously, water is essential for life as we know it. We wouldn't be able to exist without water. And methane is a hydrocarbon, which means there's carbon and hydrogen in that molecule, element stuff. Um, So that's kind of like the basic building blocks of what we are all made up of, like the proteins that are in us (laughs) and the way our DNA is made is kind of with these fundamental elements for life. So the fact that they are present in the atmosphere means that they may at some point (laughs) be used in processes on the surface of the planet for life to evolve which is pretty exciting really.
0: No it's amazing isn't it so there's the the Hubble is up there at the moment Hubble's getting the amazing images but it's it's getting Mm. an upgrade in a sense isn't it there's something better coming soon.
2: Yes yes it's called the James Webb Space Telescope which is the latest uh, telescope being made by NASA and it should be launched and yeah. yeah, scheduled to launch in October of next year. So we've still got a little bit of a wait mm. for that one. But essentially, it's even bigger than Hubble. So it'll we'll be able to collect even more light and reveal even more of the universe to us. Wow. So we should be Can't wait finding out a lot more about the yeah. universe.
0: Yeah. We're going to find out an awful lot, but we're also going to see some mm. stunning imagery, aren't we?
2: Oh, gosh, yeah.
0: And that's all we've got time for this week. Uh, join us again next week when Malcolm will be with us again. Thanks so much to Maddie for joining me. I'm sure you'll be with us again soon. Thank you for listening.
1: Love and science.